What do penis cages, penis cages, piloerection, and perpetual motion have to do with sexual health? Well, these are just some of the few things that I come across in my work life, and I'm going to talk a bit more about that tonight on the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show, the show where we educate men and women about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. Good evening. I am Maureen McGrath. I'm a registered nurse. I am hosting this show. I'm also a blogger, a researcher, a nursing expert witness, healthcare consultant, and now I can say author of the book, Sex and Health, Why One Can't Come Without the Other. That's going to be available on Tuesday. So uh, just email me if you would like your free signed copy. (laughs) Uh, Talking tonight, we're going to be talking about breasts, penises. It is masturbation month, of course. Male chastity belts or penile cages. A penile transplant in my hometown of Boston, Massachusetts. Lesbian love. And during the second hour, Sean Seal, my virtual personal trainer, joins me to educate you on how to get a better butt. Also, the health risks associated with loneliness. You'll be surprised. And the most embarrassing sex questions from all of you 40-year-old virgins out there. Transgender men and sexism, their experience. Your emails, in particular about the womanizer and more. But first and foremost, before we go any further, you and I, I want to talk to you about a very important subject, bladder cancer. May has been designated as the first ever Bladder Cancer Canada Month. And Ken Bagshaw of Bladder Cancer Canada is going to be joining me. He is a retired lawyer, integral to the 2010 Olympics. He was a past Board of Governors of the University of British Columbia, a past member of the Board of Governors of the University of British Columbia, and the Vancouver Police Board. He himself was diagnosed with bladder cancer and was so grateful to Bladder Cancer Canada, he wanted to help out in any way he could. So he went straight to the top of the organization. Why not? And he is the newly elected chair of the Board of Directors for Bladder Cancer Canada, and I'm grateful that he is on the line with me right now. Hello, Ken. Hi, Maureen. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and I appreciate that uh, luxurious and somewhat over-inflated introduction. <laughs> Not at all. Are you kidding me? All the fabulous work you've done. I love people who volunteer straight to the top. <laughs> I actually was elected to the um, the as the chair of the Nurse Continence Advisors of British Columbia, the British Columbia chapter, and they said yes. to me, well, you could be the treasurer, and uh, which I'm terrible about money, so that was one thing, but they said you can be the treasurer, but if you be the president, you actually get your flights paid to all of the annual meetings, and I said, well, why wouldn't I be president? <laughs> so <laughs> it was a it, choices, aren't they? Absolutely. It was a rapid rise to the top for me, so I understand what that is. Thanks so much for joining me from Ontario. Um, no trouble at all. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about bladder cancer and bladder cancer Canada's work in addressing that subject, a little-known subject with most people, and that's why it's so important to get the story out. That's right. And May marks Canada's first Bladder Cancer Canada Awareness Month. And bladder cancer is the fifth most common cancer in Canada, and people rarely think about bladder cancer, cancer, yet it is so common, the fourth for men and twelfth for women. And about 8,300 Canadians are diagnosed each year with this cancer. I've been involved with this uh, Bladder Cancer Canada for a number of years at the public forum as well as the 
the September walk that we have for bladder cancer. So uh, tell me about a little bit about your journey uh, and your diagnosis with bladder cancer. Well, my, <clears throat> my journey has been a relatively benign one, surprisingly enough, and uh, for a great number of people, it isn't like that at all. I was diagnosed in 2012. I got treated very quickly. My tumors were re- disclosed, dis- discovered and removed within uh, 10 days, and I've been on a constant watch, as all bladder cancer patients have to be um, since then, and I've had no reoccurrences, so I'm in a remarkably positive position. Uh, nevertheless, um, you know, one of the things about bladder cancer is that it is the most expensive cancer to treat of all of the cancers on a per-patient basis, and that's driven by the fact that bladder cancer has a tendency to very have a very high reoccurrence rate, and to ensure that uh, the risks associated with that potential reoccurrence are properly monitored, bladder cancer patients are under frequent re-examination by, by the urologist to make sure that it doesn't come back. And that's a lifetime watching routine that must be maintained for bladder cancer patients. And that's the reason that that's the situation. The other reason that, that uh, we're uh, working so hard in pursuing our three principal objectives of greater awareness, and that's what you and I are talking about right now, and also patient help and support, and also helping both contribute to and encourage more research. Why more research? Because, well, bladder cancer, as you accurately said, is the fifth most prevalent cancer in Canada. It ranks at the 20th level in terms of research funding. It is seriously underfunded. It is an orphan cancer. It is a relatively unknown cancer. And so we expend a great deal of our energy and our passion and our commitment in trying to make sure that both the public, bladder cancer patients and their caregivers, medical professionals, and anyone else who has any reason to be concerned become much more aware about bladder cancer. And we elevate its recognition to a point where we get a better balance between the research that's going on and the uh, seriousness of it as a disease in our society. Exactly. And I think what is most important is that the hallmark symptom of bladder cancer is blood in the urine or hematuria. And that happens in more than 80% of cases. And that's basically the whole theme of your campaign, See Red, See Your Doctor. Yes, as a matter of fact, that's absolutely right. The blood in the urine can be symptomatic of other things like urinary urinary tract infections. That's right. um, And so on. But as you said, the probability that it is attributable to bladder cancer is very high. And because of that, we actually launched an ongoing campaign for awareness um, better part of two years ago, and you referred to the tagline that we associated with that, that is, see red, see your doctor. And we've used an imagery of, of yellow lemon symbolizing healthy urine, and then a red lemon falling into the, into the uh, yellow lemons to indicate the presence of the cancer cells and the disease that needs to be treated. Which is and a so great... What, oh, go ahead. Yeah, sorry, I was only going to say that this, is, this campaign brought us, has been bringing us more accurately from a situation where the awareness level was abysmally low to a point where people are identifying that message, see red, see your doctor, 
And as a result of the two years we've plowed into raising awareness there, and the introduction of the Awareness Month here, as, was, as happens in the U.S. and the U.K., now all three countries have mounted May as a Bladder Cancer Awareness Month. We're finding that the awareness is growing. Um, it's, we still have a long way to go, but the higher we get that, the more responsive people will be when they see red. There's a terrible tendency that people have to slough it off when they see red, they see blood in their urine, they say it's something else. It'll I think go away. people are afraid also to go to the doctor and get the diagnosis, but this is certainly one of you those know. cases where it's better to have a early diagnosis uh, and, and early treatment for better outcomes. Yeah. You know, and there are two different streams of bladder cancer, and it's worth just noting that. The greatest percentage of them are described as non-muscle invasive, and and they tend to be, we, as we describe them, uh, the pussycats of the disease. They are quite well treatable, and the risks associated with mortality flowing from them, the risks of them getting worse and becoming muscle invasive or metastasizing to other organs is relatively low. But the other 20% are muscle invasive, and they have a high rate of highly aggressive at a high rate of going on to metastasize. And, and the mortality rate is 40% at five years, and that's a very high percentage. And that's the target of a lot of new medications that are coming out, you'll read about in the media, uh, immunotherapies, immuno-oncology to, to, it, to, it, to attack these. And there is some real promise arising out of re- research by some of the big pharmaceutical companies and we'll be hearing more about that. And we're really quite encouraged because it's the first time in almost three decades that there's been any new treatments for bladder cancer. The fact that it's been had such low visibility in the public eye is, is repeated, unfortunately, in the medical world and the research world. And we're driving to change that as well. And, of course, we have the amazing Dr. Peter Black here at VGH who's doing a lot of that uh, bench work. You, you do. Yes, we're we're very fortunate. Uh, this is a cancer that can strike men and women. And what is the most common risk factor for bladder cancer? Oh, the most common risk factor, surprisingly, I think, to most people, is smoking. You know, there's we've long associated uh, lung cancer with smoking, and that's correct, of course. But it is considered to be um, the cause in probably eight out of ten cases. Other causes can be of working in environments where there are um, caustic chemicals or chemicals that can induce it, uh, working in um, paint factories and and, uh, other places where there's uh, um, uh, toxic Toxic chemicals chemicals, being used. used. But, But that is a relative minority for sure, but smoking, as a as we all know, uh, has had a devastating effect on society for a long time, and bladder cancer is one of the major um, cancers that has um, borne that uh, that burden. Exactly. Well, it's a great organization. You're doing tremendous work. It was formed by two bladder cancer survivors, David Gutman and Jack Moon. Uh, you're continuing on their uh, fantastic foundation about this, and uh, I look forward to the walk. In September, I'll be asking my listeners to donate to the campaign. <laughs> I've been well, giving them presents for a few years. I think they can <laughs> reciprocate. I think you give them presents every Sunday night. <laughs> well, thank you very much. <laughs> um, just on the walk, let me just jump in on that. Sure. I think you, the, 
for the for the prompt. Um, September 25 in Vancouver, the bladder cancer walk will be going um, on our website. Uh, people can go to uh, BCC, I mean Bladder Cancer Canada, bccwalk.ca uh, to find it, find the walk, to look for ways to register to walk, to raise money, to be a volunteer, to support other teams. Whatever way you can help us, we'll be very grateful. And we're going to be looking, I'm going to be talking later about loneliness and the, the health risks associated with loneliness and why volunteering is a good thing and getting connected with other people. So uh, we'll tie it to the bladder cancer Absolutely. walk. Absolutely. I tie everything to sex. Anyway, Ken, <laughs> <laughs> as you know. No. As I do, yes. Great. going to tell them about the womanizer. <laughs> I'm going to talk about the womanizer a bit later. That's right. Yes. Mostly men uh, inquire about the womanizer. I wonder why. Husbands of the year. That's what I say. Anyway, well, thank you so much. Great to talk to you. All right. Thank you so much for all you do to help us. Thanks, You're very welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. So when I get back, I uh, we're going to be talking about some other things. It's just a little reminder. Grab your wine, your lover, and put your children to bed. I'm going to be talking about a penis transplant when I get back. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Welcome back. I am Maureen McGrath, and you are listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Thank you for joining me. I love having you here. Hopefully you're enjoying a lovely long weekend, a little rest from work. You might think I'm working, but this is completely pleasurable for me. I love doing this work so I have no problem and I happen to be staying in town this weekend so that was all good uh if you are out there listening and you have a burning question about sex health or your relationship by all means give me a call the number to call is 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell you can use an alias most people use the alias Dave (laughs) So try not to use that one because I know you'll be lying. I'm just kidding. Um, But feel free to call me and you don't have to give me your real name. You can give me a fake name because sometimes a lot of people fake things about sex. Definitely put your kids to bed. Don't forget that. And lie down there with your glass of wine and your lover. It is the weekend, a long weekend. Hopefully you get to sleep in tomorrow morning. Testosterone levels rise in the morning and that is a good time to have sex, AM sex, because uh, you might be tired at the end of the day, especially on a long weekend. You might be working on your home or your cabin and it's exhausting. Your back might hurt. You might be complaining to the person you love. And so a good night's sleep and some AM sex might be just what you need. So, uh, you know what? There are penis problems. And uh, I was very interested in this news uh, story that the first penis transplant in the U.S. was performed on a person who had penile cancer. It took a team of a dozen surgeons and 30 healthcare workers who practiced the technique for years. And something that's interesting about surgeons that you may or may not be aware of is you think that they you know, just see them in the office and you, they talk about your surgery and then you meet them in the operating room. But surgeons actually plan the surgery out. This is why these are very stressful jobs. They actually plan every single surgery out. That's if you have a good surgeon. Um, But a cancer patient in Boston 
had a great surgeon, and he received the first penis transplant in the U.S. It was at Massachusetts General Hospital, a hospital I'm extremely familiar with. Um, and this gentleman, Thomas Manning of Halifax, Massachusetts, received the transplanted penis in a 15-hour procedure, and that happened last week. You were talking about bladder cancer, and so you may not realize that the penis is actually, you know, it's a it's a dual dual action member, and uh, it is the tube, the urethra, is within the penis as well. And so, the physician who led the surgical team, Dr. Curtis Citrullo, and I saw him interviewed on uh, 2020. Uh, he is was explaining that the normal urination would be possible for this 64-year-old man in a few weeks. And they're also hoping, hoping, sorry, hoping, sorry, uh, hoping that sexual sexual function is possible in weeks to month to months. And this is fantastic for this man. And and I think this is a, a great man, actually. And he wanted to share his story because he wanted to give hope to other people. This gentleman had a, a battle with an aggressive and potentially fatal penile cancer. And a love life for him was virtually going to be non-existence, non-existent. I actually cannot speak tonight, and I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because I haven't thanked you for being here with me, Mike. <laughs> Possibly. It's okay. It could be. And thanks for being here and choosing oh, yeah, no all worries. the music for me tonight. You've done that for me. I have, yeah. We've got all the music. <laughs> We're good to go. I really appreciate that. Sometimes I choose the music, but uh, this time it's all you. So thanks for being here. Uh, so this gentleman, as with any surgery, some of the, the two most common complications are infection and bleeding. And this gentleman did have a serious complication of bleeding where he had to go back to the operating room on the day one post-op where he began to hemorrhage. But generally he feels his recovery has been great. And his goal here is to dispel stigma, which I love that. I love anybody who wants to dispel stigma out there because we have so many stigmas attached to mental illness, uh, attached to uh, abuse of uh, children, abuse of women, um, abuse of men. So there are so many stigmas, and penile cancer would certainly have a stigma. Who wants to talk about their penis? I mean, well, all of you guys, but um, but but in a negative fashion, not necessarily. So he feels he'll be extremely fortunate if he uh, gets 75% back of what he used to have. And as a 64-year-old man, he may not have the erectile function of a teenager, but uh, some medications will probably help him. Some devices may help him as well. Uh, this took three years of preparation, including operations on cadavers, before the team was ready to perform the transplant. The other thing I want to say is this, um, you might not think of it, but in war times, this is an injury that occurs to a lot of veterans uh, or a lot of uh, people fighting in the military. And so they are hoping to actually uh, then start doing this on um, men who have lost their penis in, in war, but they're actually looking at future transplants on a case-by-case -case basis. And so they're going to be limited to cancer and trauma patients for now. And unfortunately, at this point, they're not going to be offered to transgender people, but I imagine in the future that is one of the plans. Anyway, it's amazing what medical science can do. It's always a great idea to speak to your doctor. You know I'm about the evidence. You know I'm about... Uh, the research and looking at what has been studied and, and having a gold standard for a research study, a, a 
double-blind, placebo-controlled, three-arm sometimes uh, study. So anyway, this is an interesting, we're looking at uh, great times ahead in medical science, and I love seeing stories like this, and I hope you do too. I'm Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Welcome back. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. I am Maureen McGrath. I'm a registered nurse. It is my pleasure to come to you this evening, as it is live every Sunday evening that I come to you. And what an appropriate song for the next segment, which is 12 Embarrassing Sex Questions You Are Afraid to Ask. But first, I wanted to tell you a story. Uh, During my week, I come across, as you can imagine, I come across some amazing people, phenomenal experiences and some some unusual things and uh so this week through my sexual health practice i i came across a patient who was quite sick actually and in the environment where i work uh they're a bit tough but I, but i'm not so tough okay i i cannot prescribe drugs but i can prescribe blankets and and i often do and so this one in this one particular situation this young man was quite ill um but they he had been ignored uh by some people and so i came in uh just as a matter of uh being uh, on call as the job and uh dealing with the sexual health aspects or the sexual issues of this particular situation i'm being a bit cryptic here um, because I want to maintain confidentiality. But um, so he had been quite sick in, in another way, but had some sexual health issues as well. And uh, so I said, why didn't you say anything that you were quite sick? And he said, well, I tried, but nobody responded, which, you know, we hear that all too often in certain institutions and sometimes in our hospitals that nurses don't answer the call bells on time. And so I said, well, I'm going to uh, get you some medication. I'm going to speak to them and have them give you this particular medication that you need. And and uh, he said, I'm, I'm freezing. And I said, and I'm, I'm going to get you a blanket. He said, I doubt you'll be able to. And I said, well, just try me. So I uh, went and organized the particular medication that he needed. And then I also said, I'd also like him to have a blanket and they said, absolutely, whatever you say. And, and the, the young man was shocked and, and delighted. And uh, so I was looking straight at him in the face as I was um, uh, taking his blood pressure. And I said, well, you need it. You have a medical condition. And he said, I do. And I said, yes, you do. You have erection." And he said, he didn't know whether to smile or to cry or to laugh or what, but he was really confused as to what pilo erection was. And he said, oh, I have that. Is that a good thing? And I said, it's a medical condition, and for it, you need a blanket. And he said, you're just amazing that you've gotten me this blanket. I can't believe it. And uh, so then I, I didn't want us to give it away, but anyway... I finally revealed that piloerection is goosebumps, and uh, he was laughing so hard. But, you know, you sometimes can change somebody's situation just by um, making, you know, making light of a situation. And I said, listen, I don't want to see you in here again. And if I do, though, I also don't want you going up to them and saying, 
I have an erection. I need a blanket. Anyway, um, if you knew <laughs> the environment, you might get it a little bit more. But nonetheless, sometimes we have to have uh, make things light. And so sometimes people are afraid to ask particular questions, especially about sex. And one of those questions that people are afraid to ask is, can, and I, and I don't really mean to be phallic focused tonight, but uh, <laughs> I happen to be heading in that direction for whatever reason. So can you really break his penis? Well, it's not a bone, but you can certainly injure it. So it is possible to fracture a penis, and that can happen during trauma, especially during vigorous sex or vigorous masturbation. So keep that in mind. The erect penis is engorged with blood. As I say, sex is about blood flow. And if you're lucky, you have a lot of blood flowing to that area. But forceful bending of the erect penis during aggressive sex play can lead to this injury. And this is quite a serious injury. So if you feel that your penis has been broken, you need to go straight to the emergency department because urgent surgical treatment is recommended. So the there are sex injuries that you can have. So don't panic. It's actually pretty common. Um, and, and, you know, that this happens during this rough sex. So just remain calm and get yourselves to the emergency department yourself or your, yourself or yourselves or whomever, however many are engaged with you, two, three, four, five, whatever. A lot of whatever floats your boat. Uh <laughs> And sex is defined differently for different people. So it doesn't always have the same meaning for everybody. A lot of people ask, in particular women, why don't I ever orgasm during sex and what can I do? So, of course, they think that there's something wrong with them. But for the most case, most cases, it's a matter of finding the right spot. Most 70% of women require direct clitoral stimulation from a partner or through masturbation or the womanizer, (laughs) which will happen in less than 30 seconds, um, to experience orgasm. So there... The lack of experienced orgasm can also be due to chronic medical issues like diabetes, heart disease, depression, medications like antidepressants, uh, antidepressants, poor body image, stress, relationship troubles, um, hormonal changes. So all of these can affect orgasm and libido. Uh, So it's really good to be in touch with yourself and in touch with your body and you know, using a um, using a sex toy may help. And as I said, the womanizer is a great one to use. And I got a lot of emails last week because it was Mother's Day on May the 8th. And uh, those fabulous husbands or fathers of children who their wives or mothers, whatever, anyway, ordered them. Uh, sent me a few emails, and uh, the main concern, there was a common theme, of course, (laughs) and the common theme was, well, for example, one, hi, Maureen, my wife loves her womanizer. Have I just been replaced? Laugh out loud. Roger. (laughs) Maybe Roger. But Roger happens to be an Alec Baldwin lookalike, and so he could never be replaced. (laughs) 
<laughs> but he might be replaced. No, I'm just kidding. Um, anyway, the womanizer is no competition for this debonair man. But uh, so, of course, he's probably gained a lot of points with her. And then another gentleman, George, writes, Dear Maureen, my wife has not come out of our bedroom since she received her womanizer. She won't let me in. Should I worry? <laughs> so the womanizer is a fantastic uh, sex toy. And, and I do prescribe it to a lot of women who cannot experience orgasm. And a lot of women have never experienced orgasm and they don't know what it is, but 100%. And it's interesting, 80% of the people who order womanizers are men. They're ordering it for the woman in their life. So uh, it's it's actually a great uh, way to gain brownie points. You'll get more points from providing a womanizer to the woman in your life than you will from emptying the dishwasher or cleaning the toilets, which is mommy porn. So do that too. Uh, Also, people wonder if you can urinate during sex and not really, but you might have an urge to pee uh, during that time. And that means your G-spot is being hit in the right way. So that is a good thing. And so you may be close to orgasm. So it is possible to leak urine during sex, especially if the bladder is full and especially at orgasm. And a lot of women confuse this with female ejaculation, but sometimes it can be female ejaculation, which can occur during orgasm. So it can be very confusing, but generally with female orgasm, uh, female ejaculation, sorry, it is a smaller amount, not this large squirting that you see on porn sites or Um, that's across the room or it looks like it's coming out of a garden hose. That's actually a myth. That's actually fake. But also we see women in my clinical practice and they will leak urine, like jumping on the trampoline or coughing or sneezing or running, and then they come in for a procedure, a transobturator tape or something like that, uh, about a 20-minute procedure, and then they'll come back in and they will not be leaking urine anymore. But they will also say they're no longer ejaculating and we'll explain to them that that likely was not female ejaculation, but that was leaking urine at orgasm. So um, that can be an embarrassing question as well. Uh, What is the deal with curved penises? Well, penises come in every shape, believe you me. (laughs) I've been examining penises for years, (laughs) and they come in every shape, size, color, just like vaginas. Some curve up, down, sideways, especially while erect. And this is common and shouldn't be of concern unless somebody is experiencing pain or it interferes with sex. And I've had that, you know, young men, men in their 30s and 40s that have a condition called Peyronie's disease, which can come from injuring yourself during sex or bike riding is another way that you can injure yourself and get a bend in the penis. And and this really should be treated by a physician. But some guys just have a bit of a curved penis. It's totally normal, especially when it's erect. Um, And it might just hit us in all the right places. And that could be a good thing if you are into men. But some women are not into men. They're into women. And I'm going to be talking about lesbian love when I come back. I am Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. Love that song, Tracy Chapman. Hello, I'm Maureen McGrath. You are listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. I did say that I wrote a book, Sex and Health, Why One Can't Come Without the Other. It's coming out on Tuesday, for sure. I think I've been promising it for a while. I tend to overpromise and underdeliver. But as I said, if you want to uh, 
if you want to call me, we have the lines open. Um, we have lines open, 604-280-9898 or star 9898 on your cell. Uh, if you have a question or if you want me to send you a book. Uh, I did get a really lovely email from somebody, and he said, How are you doing? Hi, Maureen. How are you doing? My name is Paul. I am also in a wheelchair, and I'm your biggest fan. I wanted to know if it would be able, if I would be able to get your book, please. Of course you can, Paul. I'll send that out to you. You send me your address. Um, that's nice to have a fan out there. Somebody's listening. So, but feel free to uh, call. We're talking, I'm talking about You know, sex is not the most comfortable subject for a lot of people. For me, it's like shampoo. (laughs) It's just normal and every day. I'm actually, um, sometimes when I speak, I I get responses that I'm like so surprised at. Like one time somebody made the response and he was supposed to give me feedback. And instead he said, oh my God, he sat back in his chair. He said, oh my God, that was breathtaking. And I'm not saying anything about me. But I said to the colleague that I was working with, I said, you know, I, I was expecting some feedback, which was what the purpose of this was. And, and, uh, I said, that was his feedback. It was breath, breathtaking. And, uh, he said, you know, we're so accustomed to talking about sex and dealing with it and seeing patients that have sexual health issues that, you know, to us, it's, it's nothing, but to other people, it, it can be quite surprising or, or quite shocking or quite, they just don't know what to say. So, uh, but I have Mike on the line. Hello, Mike. Hello. Hello, Mike. Mike, I mean, I'm here. Hello, Mike. I'm here too. Okay, well, <laughs> we're both here at the same time. That's, that's interesting. That, isn't it? <laughs> wow. <laughs> How are you, Mike? Not bad. Not bad. Great. Do you have a sexual health question for me? Um. <laughs> uh, hmm. I don't need to put well, you on the spot. I'd actually like to get a copy of your book because I'm quite interested in the program and uh, just to see what you've come up there with um, <laughs> different ideas and programs and everything. So, Well, it's largely about my patients whose names have been changed to protect the innocent or in some cases the guilty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, and I have to say, I love the cover. I did not design it. <laughs> Claudia Gonzalez did. And uh, so in this case, please judge a book by its cover. <laughs> okay, yeah. Sounds, sounds <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. I will definitely send you a book, Mike. Thank you so much for calling. I'll have to go to the, off the air, right? Speak to the Yes, why don't you speak to Mike, my board op. Okay, thanks very much. All right, thanks for listening, Mike. Have a great weekend. I have Chris on the line. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. So. I actually had a, a question about uh, the same thing as Mike, actually. I was wondering about your book. Were you? I was, yes. I'm very interested. Oh. <laughs> well, let's see. Um, it's a about 14 or 15 cases uh, that are common sexual health cases that presented to my clinical practice in a bit of a bizarre way. Uh, that people had absolutely no idea what was happening to them or what was going on or what something meant. and uh, But it actually happens pretty commonly. And that's the thing around sex and problems with sex is that people think there's no help. People think they're alone on the island. People think they're the only ones that have this particular type of trouble. 
So I decided to disguise their change their names to protect <laughs> to protect them, and uh, and write stories and try and educate um, about some of these common sexual health dysfunctions like erectile dysfunction, low sexual desire, sexual pain, vaginal dryness. Um, some online issues, you know, when the married guy goes online looking uh, to date, <laughs> that kind of thing, and also finding love later in life. Uh, so there's a whole host of, uh, and, and some of my favorite <laughs> sex tips. <laughs> how, how do we get a copy of your book? Where do we go? Well, um, <laughs> go nowhere than this radio <laughs> station. You can actually uh, leave your information with Mike and I'll, I'll get it out to you. Oh, awesome. Thank you so much. Oh, you're so welcome. It's so nice of you to call and to listen to the show. So who knows? You know, I'm not an author. I always wanted to write a book. It was a dream of mine. But the dream was never to write a sex book. I didn't really grow up as an Irish Catholic girl in a parochial school and then all girls schools to expect to be a sexpert. So, uh, but I'd always had a desire to write a historical fiction book because that's my favorite kind of uh, uh, story. My favorite type of reading is historical fiction, and uh, and I happen to have a great family story. It's not mine, but my father's family story is quite interesting. So anyway, but I wrote a sex book instead just to make the parents proud. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much for listening, Chris. And uh, so there you have it. So there are people who still want to read. Anyway, at least they'll have a signed copy for their bathrooms. Uh, there's, you know, lesbian sex is something that we don't talk about or we don't think about it. I mean, really, who thinks about people having sex? You know, except for me. <laughs> I walk down the street and I do look at people and I think, how is it that you two are together? And I should not be that way, but I confess. I'm not judging them, but I, I'm so interested in attraction. And attraction is involuntary. And sometimes, you know, you look and you see that really hot guy and... And sort of that unattractive, you know, less than attractive perhaps. I mean, beauty is only skin deep. It's in the eye of the beholder. All of that applies. But still sometimes we're practical and we go, oh, I just can't see those two together anyway. But they they come together and uh, and that works for them. But uh, so we don't think about being people having sex in their bedrooms necessarily. And so I just think it's really nobody's business, but but their own. But some people are curious about lesbian sex. And there are some common questions about lesbian sex, like what exactly do two lesbians do as lovers? Um, and, and really, it's a simple answer. Lesbians have sex as varied as straight couples. And you know, it's actually sex is defined by each person individually and couples individually. And so you, you can never define sex because it means something different to different people. It can be vaginal sex, anal sex, strap on sex, um, anal oral sex. So it's, um, you know, it's a variety of sex. It can be intimacy. It can be touching. It can be cuddling. It can be fondling. It can be just a peck over the kitchen stove, which I've heard of before as well. Some people have sex and they don't even take their clothes off. I've certainly had encountered that in my clinical practice before as well. And so that's a really tough one to, to treat. But a lot of lesbians 
argue that the sex they have is actually better because there's not that looming issue of, of the hard-on and how the hard-on will be serviced or if the hard-on can actually get that hard. So there's a whole bunch of problems with that. But um, And women are also capable of multiple orgasms, so there's little to no re- refractory period or recovery time. So that's also good as well. Um, I think we're probably going to be going to break. Are we going to break? We're heading out to break, but we're gonna. I'm going to come back and we're going to talk. I'm going to tell you what's coming up in the second hour of the show, and we're also going to continue on with this lesbian love. I'm Maureen McGrath. You're listening to the CKNW Sunday Night Sex Show. <laughs> 